Okay, it's good to be back. It's been a long time. I think the last message we covered here in Revelation was back in May. And so I was forced to stop in the middle of a chapter. And, uh, but I'm excited to move on and, and see how Lord, far the Lord will take us the rest of this year. So if you guys don't mind, I'm going to sit down today. We're going to be talking about the perennial false prophet today and the spirit of false prophecy. And oftentimes, false teachers in America's churches like to dress all hipster hair and talk to you like a psychiatrist or some sort of a counselor instead of standing up and preaching the Word of God. So today I might look like one of those uh, false teachers by sitting here, um, but I'm hoping the words that come out of my mouth will stand in contrast to what words typically come out of the mouth of these. So, I think the last half of chapter 13 is very important. It presents a figure, just like uh, the first half does, a figure. And often we as Christians might look at these future figures, especially of those of us that believe in the biblical doctrine of the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation period. That what's the importance of spending too much time on these figures? Well, these figures uh, that will come, their spirits are already here. And the more we know the man, the better we can discern that spirit that is already at work here in the world and in the church. We've studied the person and work of Antichrist. We've studied the dragon. Now we're going to study the third person in this triumvirate of evil. And the more we know about Him, uh, the better we can recognize that spirit of false prophecy that is so abundant today. And it's not obvious. It often looks pleasant and innocent, like a lamb. But underneath is a ravening wolf or a dragon. And sooner or later, that inner nature leaks. It comes out. The demon comes out. He can't stay totally hidden. That's why I'm excited to get into this chapter, the last half of this chapter, and it might take a little bit because we need a cross-reference. There's a lot of encounters in the Scriptures between true prophets of the Lord and false prophets. And these things shed light on how we can better discern the spirit of true prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus, and false prophecy, which leads men astray from the Word of God. But before we uh, get into the text here, beginning in verse 11... I want to just review. It's been so long since we've been in the book of Revelation. Back in 2013, we started to study. Anytime you look at this book, uh, we would do well to follow Jesus Christ's outline of the book. Chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord gives His outline to John. He tells him to write three things. The things He has seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. That means after the things which are. In chapter 1, John has his vision of the glorified Christ as he stands uh, in relationship to the church. And those are the things John has seen. Those are written in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are. They're the messages to the seven churches. The red letters. Those are red letters. Everybody talks about the red letters. You know, well, Paul this and Peter this, but I follow the red letters. How many people look at the red letters in Revelation 2 and 3? There we learn that Jesus Christ uh, hates, He kill, kills, 
or he hates, he fights, he kills, and he vomits fake Christians out of his mouth. That's the red letters. In reality, the whole of Scripture is the Word of God. There's a big difference between those who believe in God and those who believe God. Um, but Revelation 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches, actual churches in John's day that teach us a lesson or are an ensample to us, types of churches that exist at all times, and a prophetic foreview of the church age. Then beginning with chapter 4, verse 1, we move into the things which shall be hereafter. At that point in the book, following the church age, John is raptured out at the specific place and time it will happen for the church. Chapters 4 and 5 is in the throne room of heaven. There we meet the, the kinsman redeemer. He alone is worthy to open up the title deed of the earth, the seven-sealed book, and to claim what is rightfully His, what He purchased at the cross. And the church is with Him in heaven, we see. Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. Then we get to chapter 6, which is the beginning of the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel. And we have the opening of the six seals, six of the seven seals, the seals that seal up that title deed of the earth. As Christ begins to open that deed, the seals come off and the seals bring judgment. And the tribulation is progressing. By the time of the sixth seal, the seventh seal, we're moving toward the middle point of the tribulation when Antichrist reveals himself and betrays Israel. We get into chapter 7, we have a, a, a parenthesis of sorts that shows us what God is doing behind the scenes despite all the wickedness in the world, despite the fact that the church has been removed, despite the fact that the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is removed and reverts back to His Old Testament role of coming and going upon people. God seals out witnesses, 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, and they go forth and preach the gospel of the everlasting God during this time. And God brings... Revival and awakening, the last great revival and awakening in this human history. And their fruit we see is an innumerable number of Gentile converts from all nations, people that in this dispensation have not heard the gospel or been clearly presented with it. These are not people sitting in America that know the truth. Second Thessalonians says they will be deceived and believe a lie. Then we get to chapter 18 and we have the opening of the seventh seal. By the time the seventh seal is opened, as it's opened... Uh, we get that seventh judgment, which is the seven trumpet judgments. The seals, the trumpets, and the vials are all linked together. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is the seven vials. So the judgment of the seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments and the seven vial judgments. Um, and so we, we, we work through that. And in chapter 9, we get into the fifth and the sixth trumpets, which are respectively called the first and second woes. And by chapter 10, we have a parenthesis again where there's a pause to show what God is doing behind the scenes. Jesus Christ appears as a mighty angel on behalf of, of Israel. And by this time, the title deed is fully open. And we have a picture of Jesus Christ, the mighty angel, reading aloud, a public reading of the title deed and claiming what is rightfully His. And this, of course, is given in the midst of horrible persecution to the, to the remnant of Israel, the tribulation saints. And this is given as comfort because all of this will soon come to an end. 
and Jesus Christ will reign. Then we get into chapter 11 where um, we meet the two witnesses, um, two faithful street preachers that, are, that come to pr- preach the truth of God in the midst of apostasy, to preach the true Messiah when all the world is going after a false Messiah. I showed you how these will be the coming of Elijah and Moses to do what they've been appointed to do. These will be opposed by the Antichrist. People will hate them because they'll say their message is not one of peace and love, it's one of torment. Uh, at a, when their testimony is finished, uh, they will be killed. by God's. Uh, uh, it, it's allowed of God. Their bodies will lie in the streets and the world will rejoice. They will rejoice. But after three days, they're going to get up and be raptured back to heaven and everyone will be afraid and a great earthquake will come and this coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. This is the end of the second woe. And then the last half of chapter 11, we're introduced to the seventh trumpet judgment. We'll see that the seventh trumpet judgment, once the narrative continues after chapter 14, is the seven vile judgments of God. These judgments move from judgments whereby man is instrument is the instrument into judgment whereby Satan and his demons are the instruments into judgment that comes straight from God. It's all from God. But God works through men to bring judgment. God's, God allows the devils to do things to bring judgment. By, but by the time of the vials, it's God Himself. It's like God told the people of Israel in the book of Amos that I've tried to get your attention through judgments, judgments that came through natural disasters, judgments that came through financial crashing, judgments that came through the invasions of other men, but since you won't listen, prepare to meet thy God. And by the time of the vile judgments, it's to the world, prepare to meet thy God. Then we get to chapter 12, which is another parenthesis of sorts, where the narrative isn't advancing, but we're being shown the major players, the major characters that are involved in this time of judgment, this period of Jacob's trouble. And it highlights the war between the dragon and Israel. There's, a, there's certain things that Satan hates. Number one, he hates the Word of God. He hates it. He twists it. He changes it. He casts doubt upon it. He hated it in the Garden of Eden. Number two, he hates the church. He will try to prevail against it, but Jesus said it's not possible. And he hates the nation of Israel. He hates all three of those because those, the presence of these and the preservation of these and God's protection of these are a testimony of his future doom. So we get into chapter 11 or chapter 12 and 13 and into verse chapter 14. And the major theme here is the war between Satan and the seed of Israel that forms the backdrop of the time of Jacob's trouble. Chapter 13 in particular provides a detailed character sketch of the last of the seven major characters. We're introduced, going back to chapter 12, um, to uh, the first of the, the seven major personages, the dragon. Then we have the second, which is the woman. These are both called great wonders. We'll see here in chapter 13 that the false prophet does great wonders. But Satan and Israel are great wonders. None of the other characters are, are, are described in this way. So that tells us the main theme here 
is the war between Satan and Israel. So personages number one and two are the dragon and uh, the, the woman, which is Israel. Then there's the man-child, which is Messiah. Uh, then there's um, Michael the archangel. Then we have the tribulation saints. And then number six and seven of the seven main personages were introduced to here in chapter 13. The beast out of the sea, which we talked about as Antichrist, and now the beast out of the earth, which is called later in the book of Revelation, the false prophet. And so we're still in this parenthesis that's highlighting the war uh, between Satan and the remnant of Israel and Messiah who came from Israel. And this will continue into chapter 14. And once we get to chapter 15, the narrative picks up again. And we have the same scene in chapter 15 that we have at the end of um, um, chapter 11. And so we'll get into the vile judgments. And by this point, we're nearing the end of the tribulation. That things happen very quickly there at the end. So right now, we're beyond that midpoint in the second half, what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. Okay, From chapter 12, verse 1 to 14, 20, is this parenthesis, this war between Satan and Israel. There's a heavenly campaign we see in chapter um, the second half of chapter 12. This is when Satan goes after the woman tries to devour the man-child. The man-child is caught up into heaven and he tries to pursue the woman or, or fight the woman and, and Michael and his archangels come and cast Satan out of heaven. I believe this happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Um, and then the war moves to an earthly campaign where he goes after the woman here on earth, Israel. And he goes after uh, uh, the remnant of her seed. The dragon pursues her into the wilderness of Edom but is able to... It fails to destroy her. She's helped uh, and preserved by God. And then his wrath turns to uh, the remnant of her seed, those tribulation saints that have believed the gospel of the God of Israel during that last great revival. The Bible talks about this onslaught uh, in the earthly campaign uh, at the end of chapter 12. And then chapter 13 unveils this onslaught or this reprisal he goes after the woman, he fails, and so he goes after anyone that follows the God of Israel during this period, the tribulation saints. This is a ruthless reprisal. And in chapter uh, 13, we get the, um, uh, the uh, commander-in-chief of this reprisal, who is the beast, and then his minister of propaganda, which here we'll see is the false prophet the seventh of the main personages laid out in this overall parenthesis. Chapter into the war's victory campaign. So this war has a heavenly campaign, an earthly campaign, and a victory campaign going on uh, throughout this period of time. So let's look at chapter 13. The beast out of the earth. If you still have your outline, I gave you an outline last time, and we're on the back page. Um... And uh, we'll, we'll, I'll get you one when we move into chapter 14. But the beast out of the earth, it's written here, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. 
And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Let's ask the Lord to bless this reading this morning. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and study of your word, or that you would reveal it to us as it is in truth. Let us be those that have wisdom and understanding as it appeals to uh, the reader here in verse 18. So Lord, reveal to us by your Holy Spirit the truth here, and may we learn something, Lord, not theology as information, but theology that's practical that we can declare and live out in our everyday lives for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, here we have the seventh personage. Uh, every time you have a dictator in human history, he always has a minister of propaganda. He always has someone that's got to prop him up and convince that he has the power and authority. We can see this throughout history. When I think of Adolf Hitler, I think of his minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, who was entrusted with propping up the dictator and convincing the people of Germany that, uh, that, that this was their authority. This was right. Um, the Nazis used a fire in the Reichstag. They staged a fire and propaganda to usher their power in. Um, claiming that it was done by certain people when they themselves had done it. It was all propaganda. Joseph Stalin had his minister of propaganda. Soviet, Soviet communism had lots of propaganda to prop itself up. And we see that today with those vying for power in our own government. Without their ministers of propaganda, they would have no power or influence. Our president uses propaganda, the media propaganda, to convince this country that what he's brought us these last eight years is prosperity and good things when the eye and common sense shows us the opposite. I believe, you know, today, the polls wouldn't even be close if it wasn't, weren't for the media propagandists who are propping up the coughing grandma. Uh, she wouldn't even have a chance, but these ministers of propaganda sow lies and deceit to prop up these wicked, devil, demon dictators. Um, now, Jesus Christ, on the other hand, didn't need a minister of propaganda to prop him up. He had a forerunner that foretold his coming, but that forerunner wasn't necessary to walk beside him during his earthly ministry. For a time, Jesus and John's ministries overlapped. 
Jesus always pointed to, I mean, John always pointed to Jesus and said, He must increase, I must decrease. That would be a great theme uh, for the church and pastors and leaders today. He is greater than me. But we've all forgotten that. But John was martyred early in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He didn't endure through that ministry. John wasn't sent to prop up Christ or to sow propaganda to cause people to follow him. Christ could get people, Christ could demonstrate his own power and authority. That's why he did those miracles, to demonstrate that he was the Christ. John was a forerunner. The Messiah has a forerunner, but the Antichrist needs a minister of propaganda. He needs someone to prop him up and, uh, and, and, and build him up. Christ didn't need that. He didn't need that because uh, he's not uh, in it for himself. He's in it for the glory of God. But here we have a true perennial minister of propaganda. In verse 11 and 12, we learn about his attributes. What are the attributes of this seventh major personage. John says, I beheld another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. So in terms of attributes, we learn about his appearance in verse 11. Now when it says another beast, okay, I'm reminded of what Jesus says in John 5, 43. Let's turn back there because we had a little bit of a discussion in, in studying the person and work of Antichrist. Jesus prophesies Antichrist. He's the second most detailed, described person in all of Scripture, second to Messiah alone. alone. And Jesus mentions him to the Jews. John 5.43, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. So Jesus prophesied of a time when a false Messiah, the word another from the Greek means of the same kind or genus. Christ was a Jew claiming to be Messiah. Another would come in his own name, like Christ, of the same kind. And, and I believe that means a Jew and claiming to be Messiah. That was one of the evidence I presented that Messiah, the false Messiah, would be Jewish. Okay? Now this word another here in John 5.43 is the same word used here in chapter 13, verse 11, when describing the beast. Another beast. That means he's of the same kind or genus as the first beast, the beast out of the sea, who is in turn of the same kind and genus as Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Um, well, he. I'll get to that in a moment. I think that's interesting. This, this beast is like the first beast. Okay? He shares many of his attributes. And everything he says or does points to the first beast. Okay? We're also told he's out of the earth versus out of the sea. Antichrist is out of the sea. John sees him come up out of the sea in the first half of the chapter. This beast comes up out of the earth. 
Now, in terms of that word another, when I look at Scripture, we definitely see symbolic imagery uh, in terms of the sea and its relationship to Gentile nations. Anytime we look at symbols, they have a literal meaning. They point to something literal. And I think we can look at Scriptures and uh, uh, cross-reference Scripture with Scripture to see what's being emphasized here. When Daniel sees his vision of the great four great Gentile kingdoms that would arise from his time and persecute the nation of Israel, he saw these beasts as God deceased man-made kingdoms come up out of the sea. And we know these beasts were Gentile kingdoms. These Gentile kingdoms came out of the Gentile nations. The sea there stands for the, the Gentiles, the Gentile nations. Then we go over to Hosea chapter 2. Let's look at that for a moment. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. We have God draw an interesting comparison here uh, to Israel. God says uh, of Israel, I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Here we have Israel associated with the earth. Her kingdom is a literal millennial kingdom here on earth. Israel is associated with the earth. Israel is not, it, it's technically the land of Israel. You know, this area of Palestine that God gave to Abraham is referred to the land of Israel. Even today they speak of Haaretz Israel, the land of Israel. That word Haaretz, the land, is the same word that we find in Genesis 1.1. Bereshit bara Elohim etashamayim v'haaretz. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Aretz is earth. And we speak of Israel, or it's spoken of today, even in modern, the modern state, as Haaretz Israel, the land of Israel. Israel is associated with the earth. The promised land is the land of Israel. It's the earth or the land that God has chosen amongst the sea of Gentile nations. So if the sea represents the Gentile nations, Antichrist comes out of the Gentile nations, then I believe the earth here, when referring to this uh, second beast, is a reference to the land of Israel. Haaretz uh, Yisrael, uh, the land of Israel. What does that mean? Well, I think we may... Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic on some of this stuff, okay? As I study the Scriptures and compare Scriptures with Scriptures, these are things that I see. I could be wrong, but I'm going to share with you what i found. I'm not going to stay away from it because I might, you know, I, you know just because I'm not dogmatic, I obviously believe it or I wouldn't share it with you. We talked about how Antichrist, there's biblical evidences that he will be Jewish, but he arises out of the ancient Roman Empire. He arises out of the Syrian part of that Roman Empire that was derived from the Greek Empire before it. Um, we talked about Syrian Jews that were kicked out and they're not there anymore. And the largest population today is here in America, which is politically 
uh, and culturally, the continuation of Rome, the imperial form of that government is gone, but the Roman Empire devolved into the modern nation-states of Europe and then trans, uh, uh, transferred over the Atlantic to America. Uh, the, the governing core of the Roman Empire remains and still has influence over the world like it did before. It's the imperial form that's lost, but it's coming again, and we see shades of that here in America. The American government is more like imperial Rome than, than the Republic of Rome. There's no question about that. One judge can make a, a decision and, and the votes of the people of an entire state can be thrown out the door. That's imperialism. Our president's an imperialist. Okay? Not, not, this is no longer a republic. But we talked about, I talked about how I believed Antichrist himself would be a diaspora Jew, a Jew from the diaspora. The diasporas are those that have been scattered and have not come back to the land. This goes all the way back to the first scattering of the Jews when the Assyrians led away captive the northern kingdom, the diaspora. I believe Antichrist will be a diaspora Jew that comes from a Gentile nation. Therefore, that first beast is seen coming out of the sea. Um, I... Uh, spoke last time back in May that um, I thought that he very well could be a Syrian, American Jew of Syrian stock. And that would cause him to fit all the prophecies in the book of Daniel. And it's funny that an American Jew in New York uh, was very influential not long ago and he died and there's a considerable portion of Jewish people, diaspora and Israelis, that think he's the Messiah and there's stickers of him posted all over Israel and uh, they go to his house on Fridays to see if he comes back. And so it's just funny how we see types of this already happen. Now, Rabbi Schneerson is not the Antichrist. He looks too much like a dork. I mean, this guy's dorky. No way. No way. Um, oh, my goodness. He's got his hand up, and it, Ricky can do the impression. <laughs> but if... If the sea here is the Gentile nations and the, the first beast is a diaspora Jew out of a Gentile nation, then it makes sense to me that this second beast coming out of the earth, the earth representing Haaretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, perhaps this, third, this second beast is also a Jew, but he's an Israeli Jew that will lead Jews in the land to follow Antichrist as their Messiah and deceive them into believing that and thereby deceive the entire world. So I think this imagery suggests that Antichrist is a diaspora Jew, the false prophet is an Israeli Jew. Now, um, we know he is the false prophet. That, that terminology is not used here in Revelation 13. He's the beast that comes out of the earth. But there's several spots later in the book where he is described that way. In Revelation 16, um, verse 13, John says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So he's called the false prophet. It's interesting that the, these three are grouped here. And I'm going to talk about that later. If you go to Revelation 19, verse 20, 
it says that after Christ returns at Armageddon and the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. We're told in chapter 13 that's what this beast does and here he's called the false prophet. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Two men in the history of the world have gone straight from this life alive into heaven. Two men in this earth will go alive straight to the lake of fire, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Now there have been those that have gone alive straight to hell, but remember a hell is a holding cell. It's the county jail. It's a type of the eternal lake of fire. Those that went straight to hell, some people try to say hell's not, Jewish people try to say hell's not in the Bible, it's not in the Torah, it's not in the law of Moses. Well, oh yeah, it is. The earth opened up and swallowed up the rebels and they went straight to hell without dying. So hell is in the Torah. But anyway, we're also told in Revelation 20 verse 10 that the devil, after he's loosed for a little time in the millennium, he's cast into the lake of fire of and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So all three of these are ultimately cast alive into the lake of fire and we see that this beast out of the earth is the false prophet. So we're going to call him the false prophet moving forward. Here in chapter 13, not only does he come up out of the earth, which I, which I believe suggests he's an Israeli, but he has two horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon. Doesn't say he is a lamb. He's lamb-like with two horns. He's lamb-like. Not a lamb, but lamb-like. What does that mean? Well, when we think of an adult male sheep, a male sheep, a ram, has horns. And a male sheep can be very dangerous and unpredictable. Ferocious. I saw a clip one time of these guys. It was, it was just people doing foolish stuff to, to, to make a video. and Some of it was funny, but they dressed up in high school band uniforms. And one of them had a tuba. And they climbed into a pen with an adult male ram and started marching around like marching band members in the pen and blowing the tuba and seeing how long they could stay in there. And that, lamb went, I mean, that ram went nuts and just started ramming right into them. I mean, it was so hard, it knocked them on the ground, hit the tuba, and they eventually had to run out of there. They're ferocious. But when a, uh, or, or an adult male ram, but when, 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 an, when a male sheep is a lamb, it doesn't have full-grown horns. It has little nubbins. Little nubbins, uh, depending upon its age, will, will tell us how old it is. And, and, and it's gener generally harmless. It's innocent, it's cute, it's cuddly, it's got its little nubbins up here. It's got a portrayal of innocency and goodness. This false prophet has a lamb-like appearance, not the horns of a giant ram that's unpredictable and ferocious, but the nubbins, the little nubbins here of a cute and cuddly little lamb. It seems innocent, it seems harmless, it seems good. He looks innocent and harmless. And he looks to promote peace and prosperity by driving men to worship the Antichrist. But we'll see when he opens his mouth, he speaks like a dragon. 
It's an illusion. It's a mask. And under that mask is a devil. I'm reminded of what Paul says. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15. Ricky, would you read that? And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their work. Satan is an angel of light. He's a deceiver. He appeals to people through his appearance. Okay? Anytime somebody says they saw a white light and thereby they do things because they saw a white light, run. Run the other direction. When people say they heard a voice in the night, in this day and time, run the other direction. Satan is an angel of light that deceives. And when he deceives you and has you in bondage, then he reveals himself. The peoples of the East are already deceived. They follow these false religions and now He keeps them in bondage through fear. That's exactly what happens here with the false prophet. He deceives. And once the deception is full and the people are in bondage, then He reveals who He really is and He forces people to take a mark. It, that's how it starts. And Christians have no discernment anymore to see it. Okay, They'll listen to some preacher who seems so gentle you look at somebody like Joel Osteen, who's just so, he's got a big smile and he just talks so softly and he, his appearance is, is, is clean cut and just so appealing versus the preacher that preaches the gospel and tell it, tells it like it is and doesn't do it for himself and tries to glorify God and people don't want to hear it. That's torment. That's just, you know, that doesn't promote peace. Okay, and then they're deceived, and once they're deceived, the demon takes his mask off, and they're in bondage. And it's also difficult to escape. But um, Satan is an angel of light, and his ministers are transformed into angels of light and give the appearance of ministers of righteousness. But we have a means whereby we can know the truth and discern, and that's the Word of God. When we turn away from this measuring stick, we can be deceived. There is a pseudo-righteousness, and then there is real righteousness. Real righteousness that bears fruit. Real righteousness that is of faith. Real righteousness that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and not one's self. When I think of false prophets, like this false prophet, he has an, an appearance of a lamb with two horns, little nubbins, Innocent, harmless. He, he exists to promote peace and social justice and all of these things. But then when we contrast this with the appearance of true prophets or true messengers, angelic messengers of God in the Scriptures, we get a very different uh, reflection or a different reaction. Let's look at a couple of these. Uh, Tony, would you look up Judges 13, verse 6, and uh, Eric, Daniel 8, verse 3. And then, Bob, if you'll look up Revelation 11, verse 10. And just go ahead and read that when you have it. Judges 13, 6. 
Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very terrible. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told he me his name. The context of this is the appearance of the angel or the messenger of God to the wife of Manoah those Israelites of the tribe of Dan. And he came to, to, to reveal to them that they would, be, they would give birth to a son, and that son was to be a Nazarite, was to take a Nazarite vow, and they were to raise him in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and he would judge Israel and begin to deliver them from the Philistines. Who was that? Samson. Samson would begin to deliver uh, Israel from the Philistines, and this would be completed in the days of Samuel. Uh, and up through you know the time of David, okay. So, man of God, this messenger of God, this angelic messenger, appeared to Manoah's wife, and what did she say he was? He was terrible. He wasn't some little gentle, uh, cuddly, you know, super spiritual. He was terrible in his countenance. Now that doesn't mean ugly or like beast-like, like what's described here of Satan's ministers under their mask. But he was terrible. And it evoked fear. And it, it evoked a reaction like, I better listen up. And it forced her to go and tell. She couldn't keep it silent. What about Daniel 8, verse 15, and, uh, 15 through 17? Okay, Daniel was approached by a messenger of God to give him an interpretation of this vision, and it says that he was afraid and fell on his face. So the reaction to true messengers of God is one of seriousness, solemnity. I better listen up, versus, oh, how sweet. Oh, isn't that just a I'm just isn't that just such an encouraging message? Look at his spirituality. Okay, there's a terribleness, there's a seriousness when it comes to God's messengers that's very different than the initial reaction that's usually associated with false teachers. If someone causes you to feel all fuzzy and warm inside, claiming the name of Christ, watch out. If the reaction to what they have to say causes you to wake up, or to sit up and listen with seriousness, then it's worth listening to and searching the Scriptures. Be, be, be warned of the warm and fuzzies. That's dangerous. That's not much different than what the Mormons teach you need to look for. That burning in the bosom. If you have that warm and fuzzy feeling when you hear these words from Joseph Smith, then you know it's true. No, 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 no. Experience is not the measuring stick of truth. Revelation 11.10 They that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry. 
and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. God's prophets came and spoke truth in the last days, probably near the temple in Jerusalem. Their main audience would have been Israelis, whom Antichrist and the false prophet are trying to deceive. Their ministry uh, overlaps the first and second uh, uh, halves of the tribulation, and they're eventually killed. But look at what the people say. They describe them. They came for their good. And they loved them enough to tell them the truth and warn them about who these real devils were. And the people called this ministry torment. They were tormenting us. And yet they fall for this false Christ and this false prophet who claims to be for their good, but when they pull off the mask later on, they seek to eradicate them. A holocaust that makes what Hitler seemed, did seem like a schoolyard beating. And so... Uh, God's prophets were accused of tormenting people. God's angels were terrible and evoked a solemnity from the hearer. False prophets evoke, the angels of light evoke warm fuzzies. Be careful, and I think this is highlighted here in this description of a lamb, a warm and fuzzy little lamb who deceives, who deceives. Um, contrast, very uh, extremely contrasted with the ministry of these two witnesses here. Um, there's a definite contrast here. And I think that he will be one that speaks out particularly against them. Um, and there'll be a relationship there during that period of tribulation. Now when we think of a lamb, we also think of Jesus Christ. This is not that type of lamb, this is lamb-like in its appearance. Just like Jesus said, false prophets will come in sheep's clothing, but underneath they're ravening wolves. Here we have a dragon that comes in sheep's clothing. Not just a wolf, a dragon. The devil himself. Lamb-like. Versus lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This false prophet looks like a lamb and speaks as a dragon. Jesus is a lamb and speaks like a lion. Much different. The dragon, the reptile, slithers and deceives. The lion declares. It's a big difference. We see the lamb of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 4 with seven eyes and seven horns. Not two little nubbins that give the appearance of goodness and innocency, but seven, the fullness of uh, they're emphasized in seven horns. The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, the fullness of God's Spirit. Uh, what is that, Isaiah 11? And then the, the horns which describe power. He has the plentitude of power and authority. It's not an illusion like you have here. He's the lamb that is a lion. Not a lamb that speaks as a dragon. Very different. As, as I said, and as I'm emphasizing here, this innocency, this goodness, this spirituality here, um, as indicated by this lamb-like appearance, is an illusion. It is an illusion. When I think of the two horns, why are there two horns mentioned here? What is that referring to? When we look at the dragon and we look at the beast, and we go back to Daniel's pictures of these personas, we see seven horns. And the horns refer to power. 
and authority, um, a type of power and authority, a political power and authority. And how when we look at history, from Daniel's time forward, there were four Gentile kingdoms that would rise up and try to wield authority over Israel and judge her and try to eradicate her or lead her captive. Um, but prior to Daniel's time, there were an additional two kingdoms that did this. There was Egypt that tried to destroy Israel and rule over her while she was be made into a nation uh, of people. Then you had Assyria that, that tormented Israel for a while and led away captive the northern tribes. Then you had Babylon at the time of, of Daniel, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then we see that Rome is divided into two, uh, into two, the initial Roman Empire and the revived or revised Roman Empire. And so when we think of the seven horns, I talked about how these represented those seven Gentile entities. You've got Egypt, Assyria, Rome, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then you've got the revived Roman Empire, which is, is uh, not, not ten horns. I'm talking about, uh, I'm sorry, I've gotten it mixed up. The dragon has uh, seven heads and ten horns, okay? The beast has seven heads and ten horns. It's that these Gentile kingdoms were represented by the heads. And then the horns represented the last of those, which is a ten-nation federation. So those horns uh, refer to uh, the last form of the Gentile world kingdom, and it's ten nations derived from the ancient Rome, Roman Empire. And it refers to a type of civil or political authority there. So Antichrist will arise up out of this ten-nation federation that we could easily see come together now. There's already talk about European superstates and globalism and all this and doing away with sovereign national borders. These things could happen very quickly. So the horns on the beast point back to man-made authority, political authority. But what's, what's being talked about here? Why two horns on this lamb will, I think, I go back to Revelation 11, um, God has ordained two witnesses. And here we've got two horns on this false prophet. These are true prophets, two of them. This false prophet has two horns. And when we studied those two witnesses, we, we, we realized there was a throwback on Zechariah chapter 4. Where, where, where it says in Revelation 11, these are the two um, um, olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And then we go back to Zechariah chapter 4 where we have this prophecy of the two uh, 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 olive trees and how the, in the immediate context this referred to Zerubbabel, the civil governor, of the people of Israel after they returned to the land, and Joshua, the high priest, who was the, the, the religious authority, the priestly authority uh, over Israel when they came back into the land. And in the preceding chapter, Satan stood against these and tried to stop Israel from being reestablished. And God said, I have my two anointed ones that will fulfill uh, the, the, and will have the, the authority of God through the political and the priestly channels. So we've got this connection going back to political or civil and religious or priestly authority in Israel. The two witnesses are a throwback on that. The, Joshua and uh, Zerubbabel 
are types or initial fulfillments and the two witnesses bearing the authority of God during the time of tribulation and preaching it are the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. And I've talked about how it's Moses and Elijah. Elijah in his day wielded the religious authority from God, not the false prophets of Baal. Moses in his day wielded the civil authority of God. He administered the covenant. He was the governor, much like Zerubbabel was in his day. Okay? So, with Moses and Elijah, we have civil and religious authority represented. Um, the authority of God uh, during uh, the tribulation. Um, but, Israel doesn't accept this authority. They build their own temple. Not a temple ordained by God. God, never, God gave a commandment to build Solomon's temple. God gave a commandment for the temple to be rebuilt, the second temple that later was remodeled by Herod and destroyed by the Romans. But God never gave a commandment for the Jews to build the temple that's standing there in the time of tribulation. God's religious and political authority that they ought to listen to is communicated by these street preachers. But they're following their own political and religious authority. Now we know Israel is regathered into the land in a state of unbelief. They're still in rebellion against God. They have their own political and religious authorities. The rabbis that want to set up this uh, religious theocracy and build their temple, they don't represent God. They're setting it up for Antichrist. And I believe this false prophet persona will encourage that. Encourage them to reinstitute their ancient rites. This is not from God. God doesn't speak through those things anymore. He speaks through Messiah. And they have rejected Him. This third temple is not of God. It's interesting to, to read about preparations. It's interesting to visit the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. But these things aren't of God. It's man-made. It's not religious and political authority from God as Zerubbabel and Joshua were in the return of the captives, it's the religious and political authority of man they're trying to establish. And so I say shame on Christians that give money to support the Temple Institute. Shame on Christians that want to help bring about the building of this third temple. They do err not knowing the Scriptures. Ricky and I wrestle with whether we should even go in that museum. Do I even want to give it one shekel? that promote what will be the seat of the beast? It was a question worth answering. This false prophet stands in, in contrast to God's two witnesses who declare political and religious authority from Him. He stands contrast to this during the days of tribulation. So, what do these two horns... They're like two hats. Do they possibly represent man-made political and religious authority that's been bestowed upon Him. God's political and religious authority comes from Him and is bestowed from Him. Man-made comes from man and is bestowed upon a man. I think of what Jeroboam did in the northern kingdom after the kingdom divided. He ordained his own priests who weren't from the tribe of Levi and he ordained his own festivals. 
Instead of a festival on the 15th day of the 7th month, the Feast of Tabernacles, he started one on the 15th day of the 8th month and ordained priests from the lowest of the people. That was man-made. I believe this false prophet will be someone in Israel, an Israeli Jew, that wields both political and priestly authority that has been bestowed upon him by Jews seeking to resurrect a theocracy that still rejects Messiah. And so these two horns, because of the imagery that goes back to the the two olive trees and what they represented in Zechariah, perhaps um, this is a reference to some political and religious authority that he will possess in Israel at the time that he um, has power. And then when I look at Jesus Christ uh, versus Jesus Christ's authority, his authority is complete. The seven horns on the lamb, a plentitude of power. When Jesus sent out his disciples, the Great Commission, we always talk about and memorize Matthew 28, 19, and 20, but we never give attention to verse 18, which ought to be the motivation behind all of it. Why did Jesus give the Great Commission? Because all authority has been given to Him in heaven and in earth. See, Jesus' priestly and political authority is not just in Israel. It's not just here on earth. It's in heaven and in earth. What's going on with this false prophet is pseudo. He comes up out of the earth, which I take to mean the land of Israel. He possesses two horns, a political and a religious authority. Okay? But when compared to Christ, all power and authority, they're just nubbins. They're just nubbins when compared with the horns of the beast. The beast himself has seven or ten horns. He's got full power over the earth. Not heaven and earth like Messiah. But what this false prophet has in Israel is enough, I believe, to persuade the Jews that Antichrist is their Messiah, that they shouldn't listen to these two street preachers, and he's got enough influence and power in Israel to convince the world to worship the Antichrist. So I think there's a religious and a political element here. Um, He convinces Israel initially that he's the real Elijah that it says will come and precede the Antichrist. That he is the real prophet like Moses, the civil authority that was prophesied would come. And that he is the one to christen Antichrist as Messiah. See, both Moses and Elijah, a prophet like Moses who was a civil authority, and one like Elijah, a religious authority, are prophesied to the Jews to come again. I believe this false prophet convinces Israelis that he is both of these figures. He is the prophet like Moses that will come. He's got civil authority. He is the Elijah that will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the religious authority of Israel. And they fall for it. So not only does Israel fall for a false Messiah, they fall for a false Elijah, the one they put the empty chair out there, what is it, Passover, hoping Elijah will come. They're going to fall for a false Elijah and a false Moses in one person, the false prophet. And he christens the Messiah. Just like John the Baptist did for Christ. It's all false. So he's probably got some kind of religious and civil authority in the modern state of Israel 
when these things began to go down. It's much like the Pope during the Dark Ages. The Pope had two hats. He had a political hat and a religious hat. He controlled the religion of Europe in the Dark Ages and he controlled the kings and the nations. Okay, he, had, he wielded both hats. This false prophet will have that um, uh, in um, his uh, authority in Israel at the time and will persuade the Jews that he is the Elijah and Moses that would come and that they should all worship the beast as the Antichrist. When we look at um, the scriptures and, and we just use a plain normal hermeneutic, we see a tie here. Think back in terms of Old Testament prophecy. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 that, that Elijah would come. Okay, Jesus told us at His first coming that, uh, that um, uh, John the Baptist was a shadow or an initial fulfillment of this. That he was a type of the Elijah that would come. Um, it says here in Malachi chapter 4, um, Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So it's prophesied that Elijah, another Elijah, will come. When you go to Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesies that another prophet like him will come. Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 16. I know I'm a little repetitive here, and I'm sorry for that, but repetition is the key to learn, uh, knowing. Deuteronomy 15, 18, 15, and 16. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him ye shall hear, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. So Moses said, Another will pro prophet will come from your brethren like me. And you listen to him. So we had that prophesied. And then throughout all of the Old Testament in various places, we're told that the anointed son of David, the Mashiach, would come. And that this coming of Elijah and one like unto Moses is associated with the coming of Mashiach or Messiah. Well, then we get to the first coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ. John the Baptist fulfills the role of the Elijah that would come. The forerunner. The religious authority that would hail the coming of Messiah. Jesus Christ, at His first coming, fulfills the role of the prophet like unto Moses, the Messiah. He came the first time, the prophet, like unto Moses, to speak to the people. And He came as the son of David. So He fulfills the role, Messiah at His first coming fulfills the role of the Moses-like prophet and the anointed son of David, John the Baptist fulfills the role of the Elijah that would come. But then we move forward in time and we have Satan trying to counterfeit all this. Okay? And we have the second fulfillment. Christ comes once, He comes a second time. When He comes a second time, Elijah 
one of the two witnesses fulfills the role of the Elijah prophesied in Malachi 3. It's the ultimate fulfillment. Moses, the second of the two witnesses, fulfills at the second coming of Christ the prophetic role prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And then of Jesus Christ, Mashiach, comes the second time as Messiah fulfills the anointed son of David role at the second coming. But Satan tries to counterfeit it all. How does he counterfeit it all? He sends the false Christ to counterfeit the anointed son of David and then he sends a false prophet to counterfeit both the Elijah that would come and the Moses-like prophet. So the, the false prophet fulfills both of these counterfeit roles. So you have five persons that will appear in the end times. Moses and Elijah, which are the two witnesses, um, and they perform the same miracles that they performed in the Old Testament. Then you have the false prophet, who is the counterfeit of these two witnesses. He's two counterfeit witnesses in one, and he performs the same miracles that Elijah and Moses performed. He performs the fire that comes down from heaven, and he administers the covenant to the people um, um, just like uh, Moses did. And we see that in Revelation 13, verse 6, when he causes them to worship the beast and receive a seal or a mark. He administers the covenant like Moses. So he's the counterfeit Elijah and the counterfeit Moses. And then we have Antichrist, which is the counterfeit Christ. The false prophet will be just like John the Baptist at the first coming. He will christen Antichrist as Messiah. Okay, so you've got this theme running throughout and a plain sense hermeneutic to me tells me what these two horns represent because Antichrist is trying to counterfeit the Elijah and Moses that would come. And that's why he is an enemy of these two preachers. These guys are, are, are liars. I know the scripture says this, but what it really means is this, and this is our Messiah. And he'll convince most of the Jews living in the land to believe that. And when the judgment comes, two-thirds of those who are living in the land will perish. It's a terrible thing. So who is this false prophet? Is it possible maybe he's a high priest in the temple when it's rebuilt? Maybe he's some Israeli rabbi. Maybe the religious Jews take over the government and the high priest becomes both the political and the religious authority. That's what they want to do. And once that temple is rebuilt, religious Jews will wield the power in Israel. There won't be a government or a Knesset. It'll be the temple and the, and the, uh, the priest. Um, so he's probably going to be some rabbi or some priest that convinces the Jewish people to worship Antichrist and through his miracles that he's able to do, he deceives the whole world. He has the appearance of a lamb with two horns. Religious and civil authority comes out of the earth, which I believe is a refer reference to the land of Israel. And let me... Um, I want to conclude verse 11 today. The key here is that he speaks like a dragon. That's the key. If we stopped at like a lamb, we'd be in trouble. He speaks as a dragon. 
And this is what proves everything else I've said to be true. He's a deceiver. Not like Jesus who speaks as him. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But like a dragon, slithering, deceitful. Just like the serpent in the garden. And he's tied and possessed by the dragon himself. Satan. He's part of that satanic trinity that tries to counterfeit the character of God. He's the anti-Holy Spirit. We have the anti-God, which is the dragon. We have the anti-Christ, which is the beast out of the sea. And we have the anti-Spirit, which fulfills the role for Antichrist that the Holy Spirit does for Christ. The lamb-like innocent spirituality here is a ruse and it's an illusion and the truth always leaks out. This false prophet is the ultimate example. He's the perennial wolf in sheep's clothing. Let's look at two quick passages. Matthew chapter 7, 15 and 16. And then Matthew 24, 44. Bob, if you'll read Matthew 7, 15 and 16. And Paul, if you'll read Matthew 24, 44. Yes. Be a false prophet which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raving, uh, raving wolves. Yeah. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Okay. Beware of false prophets. They are come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside they are ravening wolves. This is the perennial example. This false prophet comes in sheep's clothing. Underneath he's a dragon, far worse than a wolf. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now that's not right. What in the world have I done here this morning? 24, uh, 24, 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Jesus warns of false Christ and false prophets. There's a distinguishing here. False messiahs and false prophets. When he said that, he spoke the truth literally. Because here we have the false Christ and the prophet. And when we see the men here, the false Christ, the man, the false prophet, the man, and then we have Jesus say that many will come, and then 1 John tells us the Spirit is already here. The Spirit of the ultimate false Christ and the Spirit of the ultimate false prophet is already here in this church age. So we need to study these men so we can recognize that Spirit. These are the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus said would come uh, prior to the coming of the Son of Man. Underneath the mask is a devil. The world will marvel and see him as a land, lamb, but he is a devouring dragon who deceives to destroy. He doesn't deceive to benefit. He deceives to destroy. His intent is to destroy men. Just like the Hindu gods and goddesses exist to destroy 
men. There's no concept in Hinduism of a benevolent deity that does what he does for redemption or salvation of men. There's no concept of that. There's no concept of that in, 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 the, in Islam as well. Muhammad in the Quran said he didn't even know what God would do with him when he died. And you want to follow somebody like that to teach you about God? It's foolishness. It says a lamb, but underneath is a dragon who deceives to destroy. It makes me think of a phrase I heard once. When the mouth speaks, the heart will eventually leak. When the mouth speaks, the heart eventually leaks. The devils underneath, false teachers and fake Christians, there's many demons that walk among us in human skin. They often slip up and the voice of the dragon comes out. If we're listening, we'll hear it. I think the dragon or the demon slipped up about a week or so ago in the news media and the dragon spoke. Uh, Former President Bill Clinton was giving an interview with PBS about his wife and how qualified she was to be president. And this is what he said in the midst of building her up, and he was just so gentle and, you know, the opposite of, of, of Donald Trump's demeanor, which is so blunt and straightforward, but just so gentle and talking about what a great wife and hard worker his, his wife, or Miss, uh, the, the, the coughing grandmother, grandmother is. He, he said this, She's worked like a demon, as you know, as Secretary of State and as a Senator in the years since. The dragon spoke. Came out. Absolutely, she's worked like a demon because she is a demon witch. And shame on any Christian that'll go to the polls and vote for that devil, that lamb that speaks as a dragon on election day. She is a type of the false prophet. She's the spirit of the false prophet. She's a liar. She's a liar. And she can quote scriptures at a Baptist convention like she did a couple weeks ago. But she is a twister of the truth, a liar and a devil that exists to destroy. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you you need to vote. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you should or shouldn't do where the other candidate is concerned. I've decided that on election day, I'm voting for Donald Trump. And I'm going to tell you why. Because Mr. Trump is the only one that's had the courage to speak up and say that what's happening to Christians in the Middle East is a holocaust. And I've seen pictures of Christians being crucified. And he said he's going to do something about it. The Bible says we need to remember those who are in bonds. It says in Proverbs, if we see people given over to death, and we do nothing to try to stop it, the one that keeps us safe will remember that. So if, if my vote can do something to stop what's happening to Christians, I better exercise it. The second thing is, he's been very specific of things that he wants to do where abortion is concerned. Not as far as I would like it to go, but I'd rather have babies saved than to do nothing and they continue to die. I was encouraged when he appointed a woman who's very staunchly pro-life this past week to, uh, to uh, head up his uh, uh, pro-life commission or whatever they call that and made it very clear that he wants to end late-term abortions. 
and he wants to uh, defund Planned Parenthood completely if they're going to continue to fund abortions, to make it so that government money is not used uh, to fund these things. Something's better than nothing. Okay, And I've got two groups of people, my persecuted brethren in, in Christ and little unborn babies that are defenseless and can't defend themselves. I don't think I can sit home and at least not something on their behalf. Doesn't mean I think Donald Trump will fix this country. He won't. Doesn't mean I think he's a Christian. I don't believe he is. But we've got to remember our persecuted brethren and those little babies on election day. And that's not the same as voting the lesser of two evils, and it's not the same as casting a vote for the Mormon. This country is barreling toward destruction. I don't think it's... There's nothing that can be done to stop that. But perhaps it can be delayed. Like Nineveh's judgment was delayed uh, quite a while as a result of Jonah's preaching. It was delayed. It came, the prophet Nahum described it. It came, but it was delayed. God could still have mercy and delay this. And that's what I'm hoping. But after wrestling a long time for the sake of the little babies and those poor Syrian Christians, women and children, I can't just do nothing. So that's what I've decided to do. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You need to vote your conscience. But if your conscience has you cast a vote for that devil witch, whether you vote for Trump or not, if your conscience has you cast a vote for that devil witch, then I question your spirituality. I don't see how you could be saved. I really don't. I don't know if I even want to fellowship with you if you would do that. So I'm going to go on record and I'm going to say it and I'm speaking as a person that has an opinion and has a right to give it in this country. And uh, that's just my two cents where that's concerned. Pray about it, seek the Lord, and vote your conscience. Or don't vote your conscience. But if you vote for that demon witch... To me, you need to come under church discipline, in my opinion. I don't think we got to worry about that in here. But um, the spirit, you know, the, 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 the dragon leaked last week. She's worked like a demon. She is a demon. And eventually, when the mouth speaks, that heart leaks out. Eventually, that devil in sheep's clothing takes the mask off or reveals it or the sheep costume tears or rips and you see what's underneath. It always comes out. The spirit of this false prophet that will come in the flesh is love, love. It's all love. I remember preaching at a campus several years ago. We were preaching the cross. And some girl came out and just started interrupting and saying, Love, love. It's all love. It's all love. That's the spirit of the anti-Holy Spirit. That's not the spirit of God. Love, love, it's all love, but the message and the words controvert the clear revelation of God as found in the Scriptures. Let me tell you how to detect the spirit of the false prophet very easily. There's an easy way to detect the spirit of Antichrist. If a man that claims to follow Christ, if he claims to be a man of God, if he claims to be a pastor, hesitates the least little bit when asked concerning whether Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that's the spirit of Antichrist. If you beat around the bush about that, you are the spirit of Antichrist or you've been deceived by the spirit of Antichrist. That's an easy way to detect that. Let me tell you an easy way to detect the false prophet and his spirit, which is, has allegiance to Antichrist and the devil. I'm a Christian, 
But the Bible was just written by men. That's the spirit of the false prophet. Hesitancy about Jesus being the only way is the spirit of Antichrist. Hesitancy about the Bible being authoritative is the spirit of the false prophet. You can spot them. You can get that lamb, that gentle preacher with such charisma, you can get him to speak as a dragon when you go to the Bible. Eventually it will come out. I've had lots of these lamb-like creatures approach us as we share and preach the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on the streets, and they approach in gentleness. And they come up and it's usually, you know, I really agree with your message, but, you know, uh, I, I just, I'm not sure this is the best method. I think you're turning people away and we need to love on people and build relationships with people. And it's lamb-like, lamb-like, lamb-like. And I'll go back to the Scriptures and eventually the dragon speaks. Well, that's just the Bible. The Bible is just written by man. You can't believe everything you hear. That's when the false prophet reveals himself. Watch out for those who say, I love God, I love Jesus, or I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but they don't believe God or believe Jesus, and they controvert the Scriptures. I don't care how loving, gentle, woolly, and fuzzy they look. They're not of God. They're a dragon underneath. And the type and the spirit of this uh, beast out of the earth is already here today. Can we recognize it? I talked about the test in 2 Thessalonians that would, do we love the truth? Have we received the truth? Have we taken pleasure in unrighteousness? If, if we've not received or loved the truth and we take pleasure in unrighteousness, then we're setting ourselves up to be deceived here. The beast that comes out of the earth, a lamb that speaks as a dragon, he's not here yet. I don't know if he's been born or not, but his spirit is already working in the church, just as the spirit of Antichrist. Are we able to discern it? How can we discern it? We've got to use God's measuring stick, which is the Word of God, not experience. Next week, um, I want to get into uh, a true prophet of the Lord. What are some things that characterize a true prophet of God or a true preacher of God? I want to look at the Scripture. Then I want to talk a little bit about false prophets. What are some characteristics of false prophets in the Scriptures? Okay, and then I want to look at a couple of... There's many instances of this, but I found some instances in the Scripture where a, a true prophet of God and a false prophet actually confront each other. There's a confrontation. And uh, um, that sheds some light on these things. So again... We need to be those that can discern true preaching from false preaching. And there's so much false today, we got to go here. And much of what the world calls hate is actually reflected in the true prophets of God here in the Scriptures. And much of, much of what the world calls love is reflected in the false prophets of God. And then once we do that, we'll get into verse 12, the ministry of this wicked man. And then verses 13 through 15 behooves us talk a little bit about miracles. What's the difference between true miracles of God? What do they do versus false signs and wonders and in in, in we produce? So really we're talking about a person in the tribulation here. Just a few verses in a chapter that's often skimmed over, but it behooves us to deal with some heavy topics uh, 
True preaching and false preaching. True miracles and false miracles. Signs. Should we be those that look for signs? Should we be those that um, want a riddle when we've got the plane right here? There's a lot of that. So it may take us a while to get through chapter 13, but I'm excited about it. And we'll move along as God, uh, as God directs. Going back on what I said earlier um, about this election coming up, and I mean, God could still uh, change things. And, you know, if, if, I were, if the election were today, this is what I would do. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do on November 8th. I may not even be alive. But another reason why um, I would vote for Mr. Trump, aside from uh, I believe it's opening my mouth in defense of persecuted Christians and in defense of the unborn, is you look at the people that hate him are the same people that hate the gospel. When you, you can look at a man's enemies. A man's enemies tells you a whole lot more about who he is and what he stands for than his friends. That's just one man's opinion. We need to look at a man's enemies. I'm serious. When you've got the globalist hating the prospect of that, when you've got uh, rules and, and everything that's wrong with our society, and when you've got dead churchianity and, 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 and uh, the, the Muslims and, and the Palestinians, I mean... A man's enemies tell you more about his character than his friends. And uh, the Bible says, Woe unto men when all men speak well of you, for so they did of the false prophets. And God, if you look at American history, there were men of God, used by God, who were not believers at the time they sat in the presidency of this country. And it wasn't until later in their lives they stood for righteousness and God brought them in. And if I use some of the logic that some uh, have today, I, I may not have voted for George Washington or Andrew Jackson or some of these others or, uh, that God brought to Himself later on in life. Andrew Jackson didn't become a Christian until his last years. But he feared God and stood for righteous things when he was president. But he wasn't a Christian man. Abraham Lincoln wasn't born again until after he saw all the dead at Gettysburg and it drove him to a Savior. So, I mean, um, there's a sense in which we don't vote for a pastor. We're not trying to build a Christian king this earth. That's not our job as the church. Our job is to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to preach the gospel, to um, remember and act on behalf of our brethren around the world, to love them above, uh, to put love for them above love for the lost. And if I truly love my persecuted brethren, then I'm going to cast a vote for someone who at least says he's going to do something to end the genocide. Now, if, I'm, if we're going to cast a vote like that, then we need to hold his feet to the fire. Vote your conscience, my friends. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm telling you to vote your conscience. If you vote for Miss Clinton, you don't have a conscience. She hates unborn children. Um, cares nothing about Christians uh, being persecuted in the Middle East. We've had 
Over 11,000 Syrian refugees brought to this country. Only 54 were Christians. Only 54. And they're the ones being slaughtered. So we need to talk about these things as, 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 uh, as, as, as Election Day approaches. And I think this is a very different scenario than we had four years ago. I'm not trying to be a hypocrite. And um, there was reasons why I wouldn't vote last year. And uh, I think things are different now. But that's just one man's opinion. So um, think about those things. Um, think about your brethren around the world. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for them. Uh, we're to remember those as if we're in that same spot. And the fact is, most Christians in this country don't know persecution. We don't have to worry about persecution in this country because we're not a big of a threat to the devil to necessitate it. Some of these believers that are being persecuted put us to shame in terms of their commitment to the Lord. Uh, I've read stories of, of people, of children being beheaded and you know they they they're at, in those last moments are crying out to Jesus. They're not denying him; they're crying out to him. So maybe the reason we don't have persecution here is because we're all so daggum weak spiritually. We're all so lukewarm. We don't persecution is a tool of the enemy to try to stamp out the gospel. But if we're not being a loud enough voice for the gospel, why would Satan waste his time and resources here? And the ones that do see some sort of persecution are the ones that are actually speaking out about the gospel and not compromising. Oh, you'll find enemies with that. You'll find them quick. So just some things to think about. Let's close in prayer. I don't want to keep rambling on. I'm sorry for that. But uh, we'll come back next week and continue in this text.